So welcome everybody to another episode of Float Your Boat. I'm George Sabadoff. And you? George <laughs> You know, you're Brett. That was fantastic. <laughs> oh, we're not gonna go. <laughs> welcome everybody to another episode of Float Your Boat. I am George Sabados and you are uh, Brett Pattinson. And today I'd like to make mention that we're using uh, a new facility. It's a temporary facility, so the sound quality could be a little bit different. But it might be slightly different, but I, in my headset, it's sounding good. It's sounding pretty good. And speaking of pretty good, we have a person on today who has had a pretty good career in the air, field of saving people's lives. Now, who do we have on today, Brett? We have uh, Trevor Cracknell, George. He's, um, he's with the Westpac Helicopter Service. Um, and I would say that uh, Trevor would be what you call a reluctant hero. He uh, spends his working life rescuing people. One of those blokes that's quite laconic and would probably say to you, I was just doing my job. That's exactly what I can imagine he'll say in the interview today and I've heard from a friend who knows him that he is the most humble or, you know, wonderful bloke around. The kind of person we love to interview, right? Yeah. And he has a quite a quite an interesting background because he he was more than just a, a Westpac helicopter rescue guy. He's uh, before that he um, represented um, Australia at the Commonwealth Games. He did in swimming, and um, he's also an Ironman champion. He's a, a card carrying member of the Maroubra Surf Club. I think he's a lifetime member. Um, so he's spent a good deal of his life in service. Uh, in the community service to uh, saving people's lives. So, so I bet he's an all-round nice guy. So listeners, just remember, if you like Float Your Boat, go and review us on whichever app you're using at the moment, whether it be... On your Android or your iPhone. Yes, and be sure to review, uh, find the review tag. and yep. click on that and write a nice review or, yes. and subscribe. Yes. Because all of that goes into pushing us up the rankings a little bit more so we can spread the love of Float Your Boat out there to the real world. And apart from all that, we really would appreciate it. We would. We appreciate all of that stuff. And, and if you've got somebody that you think would be great for us to interview, um, email us at fybpodcast at gmail.com. Terrific. Thank you. Float Your Boat podcast about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. So welcome to our studio, Trevor. Thanks how so are you? Much. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Brett? Did you say hello to me, George? Uh, n- no, that's because we did that in our preamble. Oh, yes. Yeah, so, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. Going, hi, hi, Trevor. How are you? Nice hey, to meet Trevor, you. Trevor, that's Thanks. Brett. I'm George. <laughs> <laughs> and if we all sound like one voice, don't worry about it. That's fine. <laughs> so Trevor, Trevor, you have a very illustrious profile, right? And um, let's, let's roll back a little bit. I mean, looking at you today, uh, n- one would never pick that you're a Commonwealth swimming champion. <laughs> what are you trying to say here, George? <laughs> no, I'm Is that saying the stomach? That I'm saying we all we all get old, <laughs> older, but, but getting better looking. You're better looking, but oh, you definitely. still you still keep up swimming, don't you? You you're yes. still you're part of you're part of which surf club? I'm in Maruba Surf Club. Yep. Yeah. And, and and in your lifetime, I'm not going to ask you your age because it's well <laughs> it's on your profile, but I won't embarrass you. Uh, out of your life, how many years have you been swimming? I've been swimming now for probably about uh, 54 years, yeah. So, so Trevor, did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Yeah, I, was, uh, I grew up at Maroubra, Matraville. So mm-hmm. joined the Nippers when I was five years old. Um, progressed through there, joined Maroubra Surf Club after that. 
competed for the surf club in all different t- types of events, swimming, board riding, Ironman, um, and I was, an, I was a competitive swimmer too. So that just the surf was the fun part mm. where the swimming was the hard yards, so the you, pool swimming. So your mum and dad had to get up at 5am every other morning and take you down to the pool to do laps, I take it. Basically, and then when I could walk or ride my push bike, then I then I rode that. So I was only very local. I lived just down from the pool, so it was pretty good. Yeah. So your your parents were um, involved with what you were up to, or you did it did oh, yeah. it on your own? No, no. The parents were involved. They loved it. They were yep. all swim meets and and that type of thing. All the surf carnivals, the whole thing. Um, but yeah, pretty much once you get a little bit older, then you're pretty much doing it doing it yourself. So and we, I enjoyed it. Had a good crew of people. That I was training with, you know, and a lot, lot went on to be Olympians and, and that type of thing, and yep. and you know now some of their kids are swimming really well too. Really, yeah. So tell me, tell me, Trevor, like what what made, what was the best thing about your 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 childhood and growing up in Matraville, Maroubra? What was the thing that you enjoyed the most? Oh, just being local, local, living near the beach, and yep. surfing was our life. You know, just being in the water every day—that's all we live for. So you were a prolific surfer as well, were you? Like I'm not a good board rider, but I surf and I enjoy the surfing. I yep. wouldn't say I'm a good board rider, but uh, I can ride a board. So, so. you, um, so if you, do you think over the years you've seen changes in the ocean at Maroubra? Oh, definitely. You know, we went through because uh, uh, out at Malabar we've had the sewer works out there. We all know about that, and I remember in the early days where Maroubra Beach was actually black. The water was black. And we still swam in there. Mm. And it was oily. Um, if you look now, since they put the diffusers 3Ks out um, for the sewer works, it's the cleanest water around now. Malabar, Maroubra, fantastic. Mm. I mean, it is hard to believe that we used to still swim in that stuff. Yeah, we did. We didn't know any better. That was, that was the thing. Well, Bondi was uh, atrocious as well. Yeah, you, you know, you get the southerly at Bondi and it would mm. blow up from uh, Malabar mm-hmm. and uh, it was the same. But All along those eastern beaches. So the water's cl- like m- much clearer and cleaner in <coughs> right across the coast now because of the, the deep water outfalls and stuff. But, but have you noticed a change as far as pollution goes? Is there more pollution, do you think? I mean, you're, at the, you're, you're flying above. No, I think there's less, a lot right. less pollution now. Yeah, it, 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 it's really good. Yeah, you, even at Malabar, now we had the, the Malabar Lake where the water used to just go in all the storm water. They've re-diverted that now. So when it rains, Malabar doesn't get, get as dirty and that type of thing. Because I swim, I just live down from Malabar and Malabar's a beautiful beach. Mm. They've got the pool there. Um, there's so many people using it now. It's fantastic. I remember. Still a little bit of a hidden... Yeah, the area there. We don't want to tell too many people about well, it. Well, <laughs> it's it's it's, uh, it's it's amazing though that there's now a hidden secret. Whereas before, everyone knew not to live at Malabar. That's true. <laughs> you wouldn't live there. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now everyone's dying to live there if you can afford it. Yeah, yeah. actually, it's it's like Bondi. You can't afford to live there anymore. Yeah, no, we had to move. <laughs> <laughs> well, so tell us, tell us quickly. Like, I mean, you you okay? So you had this outdoor sporty lifestyle, right? Yeah. Um, I, I presume you went to a local school. Yeah, I went to Matraville High School. Any brothers or sisters? I've got one sister. She's four years older than me. Yep. yep. Was she? Uh, did she have a similar bent to you? Did she like the ocean, swim a lot, surf club? Uh, not really. She wasn't really. Uh, she could swim okay. Um, she learned to swim, but she wasn't a competitive swimmer or anything like that. It was really funny. She moved down the south coast, mm-hmm. and uh, her young boys grew up, and they joined a surf club called Browley Surf Club. Mm-hmm. Now, my sister didn't, didn't actually join the surf club until she was in her 50s and she's only just stopped doing patrols in the last few years. Wow. You know, she's, she's in her 60s now but she was, you know, still doing her proficiency tests and all that and so she, started, she got through the surf club system later on in life, which a lot of people do mm. when their kids join, mm. even if they didn't come through as kids themselves. Yep. And she got a lot of enjoyment out of that and she swims down there regularly. Uh, you know, uh, once a week they swim and they'll swim for good distances and all that. So it's a really good crew they've got down there at Browley now. I've, I've done a few swims with them. And uh, they never miss through winter, everything. Do you think um, that you ended up doing what you do now because of the surf life saving? Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it's quite a, it's quite a leap. We'll probably get to that a, a little bit later because, mm. because before that, 
um, you obviously you were very competitive and by nature, and and you were in and around the surf. But how did you how did you segue into the swimming pool and become like a swimming champion? Like how did you were you swimming miles and miles a day in a pool as well as doing what you were doing? Oh yeah, yeah. Basically, in, in the early days, everyone just joined the local amateur swimming club, Maroubra Amateur Swimming Club. Mm. Um, we had uh, a coach there initially. The coach I started with was uh, Terry Buck, who was a, he was an Olympic coach. Um, and when he left Heffron Pool, then another coach called John Rogers started, and he's he's a fantastic coach, mm. and he's still coaching now, John, and he's had some fantastic swimmers over the years. Uh, and that progression there, John Rogers, his brother Barry Rogers, everyone's a lot of people have heard of Baz. He he was uh, the legend surf Ironman swimmer, right? And uh, because of that affiliation, well, we went up through the surf club too. So Baz would teach us in the surf. John or JR, as we used to call him, he he was the the legendary coach, and he he was a, he was a hard task master though. Um, you know, the sessions I used to do was uh, I was a butterfly swimmer. Yep. Um, we used to average around the, the six to seven kilometre sessions a day. And a mate of mine who was an Olympian, Max Metzger, he was a distance swimmer and he was doing his 10 to 12 kilometres a session. Yep. And he was doing six sessions a week of a morning and six of an afternoon. So you wow. imagine the kilometres. He swam around the world a few times, wow. I think, at the Metzger, yeah. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, Amazing guy. He's, um, he's, his name is quite quite famous. Um, yeah. But, but, but tell me from your perspective, what kept you turning up? Um, I think it was just the guys I was swimming with and, and, and the girls too, you know. It was, a, it was a mixture. We had some fantastic girl, female swimmers swimming with us and it was just like a family. And, uh, yeah, it was tough. It was hard. But... Um, you, you know, you, your body gets into that routine, and when we were seeing results at the at, at the competition side of it, it just carried right up through there, right up to the Commonwealth Games, which I was selected in. You know, and I think John Rogers was a big part of getting me into that that games there too. So um, through the hard 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 tasking swimming he used to give us. Mm. So so when you were a kid, do you think you don't think about it like you would now? Well, I guess what I mean is. You just did it because you had mates there and you had a good team and a good family. But if you looked at it now, you must have been driven and had that competitive spark in you to have been able to achieve that because most people wouldn't be able to do those sort of kilometres day after oh, day. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, my oldest daughter, she, she showed a bit of potential in swimming but and I sort of was a father, you know, and my, my wife, keep, keep going, we want to see you keep swimming. But she just never got the bug. She loves her surfing too, mm. which I can mm. understand that. Yeah, it is it, it is a hard game, mm. but it does you do reap the benefits on fitness and and all the other things too. Yeah. I am I am curious about about the way it, the way you felt about the competitions themselves. For example, training was hard, right? But is it true that training has to be a lot harder? than the actual competition so that you feel like you're breezing through it or was the competition itself difficult as well? Oh, I always found I always nervous in the competition but I think that's another thing that your body gets to keep you going. Mm. Um, yeah, the training was hard. Um, the racing's hard. Obviously, you know, you're doing seven-kilometre sessions. You're doing 12 sessions a week and then for me, you know, I'm doing, say, heats, semis and finals of the two, four laps of the pool of a 50 metre pool 200 yep. metres butterfly yep. um, but still hard races yeah I bet you really will. hard races butterflies are hard enough um, you know discipline without having to do 200 or 400 yeah. of, of it yeah, that's for sure yeah I try I try swimming now I'm lucky to do a lap in a butterfly <laughs> yeah 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 that's <laughs> you right. didn't realise how, how <laughs> you, know, you just took it for granted back in that, that, that era I am Impressed by anyone who can who can do more than two laps, butterfly, because yeah. it is an extremely hard um, manoeuvre or a hard style of swimming, particularly around the shoulders. It's, oh, it is. And uh, you know, I've I've tried it myself, and you know, after twenty metres, I start to die. <laughs> Can't get out of the water. Start to take in water. I don't know how you guys <laughs> manage to do that. But is there any one particular race that stands out for you? 
Um, oh, yeah, look, I've oh, well, there's actually been a few, but it was uh, I made the finals of the Commonwealth Games and I ended up sixth in the final of the 200 metres butterfly. And, and you know, back then there was some Canadian swimmers. We were, we were racing world-class swimmers yep. back then. Mm. And admittedly I was, you know, three, three seconds behind them in times and that. But uh, for me to be standing on the same, in the same race as some of those legend swimmers was just fantastic. And the trip itself, we had a six-week training camp in Hawaii Oh, wow. Yeah. And then, you know, we spent two weeks in, in Edmonton, Canada, which was just phenomenal. And wow. the people we met and, and, and that type of thing. And after that finished, a few of the swimmers went on to the World Championships and I travelled through America with uh, three other of my mates who were on the swim team and they were all at universities in America. So we stayed at the universities and I had a, it was just, just unreal. So there were some good times. You just weren't. You, oh, you weren't yeah. always in the pool. No, not always in the pool. There were plenty of good times. So any anything you'd like to share? No. <laughs> <laughs> what happens on tour stays on tour, as they say. That's right. How long did you swim competitively? Basically from when I was uh, about eight years old mm -hmm. right up to 17, 18 years old. And in Australia it was funny. We In America you've got this collegiate scholarships where yes. you can get so from 18 to 22 you yep. can keep swimming um in australia now we do have the institute of sport and that type of thing and and now our swimmers do go a bit a little bit longer but after that i had to work back in the workforce um and there was not really a, a scholarship type of university when i was going through that we had which is now fantastic for the kids like they, they can go and study get a degree and they can do that mm. four years of competitive swimming under a fantastic coach like yep. the Institute of Sport down in Canberra, you know, so, so it's unreal. If only we we were, you know, exposed to that. You know, mm. yeah, it's evolution, isn't it? Well, it, it, is, it is as, indeed. As the time goes on, so well, um, yeah, it's it would have been great to, great to uh, have a go at that. Because so, you never know, right? Well, you never know what would have happened if you, yeah, yeah. But in saying that, I was. Uh, offered a couple of scholarships in America after the Commonwealth Games. You were? Yeah. Right. And yeah, one in Hawaii and one in uh, Iowa. But uh, it was funny. It was a bit of a homebody, I guess. I didn't want to take the chance of going over there. I, I had my home back here and that type of thing. So I decided not to do it. Whether that was a good thing, I'm not too sure. So, Trevor, you, um, you finished – so you get to 18, you finish school. Did you just stop swimming – and then go into the workforce. What was the next step after the, the, the you know, the surf club and swimming? I mean, well, pretty, not the, you know, it's yeah. Pretty much when I was, I was actually swimming. I was, I did my trade with my dad as a painter and decorator. But you know, he sort of let me when I was training hard and that I could sleep. I could get knock off early and that type of thing. So I was very fortunate there. Mm -hmm. But when I stopped swimming, I competed for the surf club more. So I started doing Ironman competitions. So that went on pr for another probably five, six years after that. So you never... So the training continued on. Right, just right. a different style of training. Just a different style, yeah. So you, you didn't experience the uh, the blues that uh, they, they talk, they've been talking about recently for, for competitive swimmers uh, no, well, when I they did. quit. No, I actually oh, did, did, yeah. When I, when I retired, I was retired for four months and then... I decided to start back again. So I swam all right and I ended up, even after that, I ended up uh, getting selected in an Australian team. It was only in Australia. We, we raced the Russians in Melbourne. But that was I'd retired for four months, got back into it, and I was swimming pretty good still. And uh, I was selected in, a, in a, a team there. And then it was after that, then it sort of started to fade out. And then I concentrated more on the surf, swimming and Ironman and, and that type of thing. So you... So you must have like a a keen sense of competition somewhere because you've done it for a long time. Yeah, it, it's a bit of a bug you, we had to. You know, you, mm. you you needed that competition with all the training and that, and that was the enjoyment. Mm, so it's yeah. always nervous though. You know? Right, right. And that's right. and I guess you need that too. So the comp do you think the competition? Sorry to interrupt there. That, do you think the competitiveness is is against yourself more so than other people, or it's like some people, you know, they challenge themselves. Other people like to beat other people. You know, what's what is yeah, it for you? It's hard to say. I, I was probably out of all my mates I swam with, I I probably wasn't as hungry as some of them were, and and just what they, you know, a lot of my mates just they'd win it and they wanted to win at any anything, 
you know, whether it was a game of marbles, mm. that type of thing. I, mm. I probably, my personality wasn't um, right up there with that, but I enjoyed the racing. I enjoyed the training. I enjoyed the racing and I enjoyed the camaraderie ship with, with the guys I swam with and, and down the surf club. Mm. As you know, we're all in surf clubs. It's uh, the friends you meet down in the surf club. That's, that continues for the rest of our lives. Mm. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's a fantastic institution. Certainly is. Well, well, well. Then, if you weren't that competitive, or as competitive as some of the others, um, would you say that that um, it was sheer hard work that that made you a capable swimmer, or you had some latent talent to begin with? What do you think made it for you? I think it was average talent, and yep. our coach just made me work hard. He was the guy that got me to the Commonwealth Games. Right. Yep. He, uh, you know, it was the hard training said, you do this, we'll achieve this. Yep. And I've got to hand it for John Rogers. He was a phenomenal coach. And that's, I take it that's a philosophy you've applied to your life since then as well? Like, Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's something that doesn't leave you. Yeah, it is something that will n- never leave you. So how did you get there? Like what, what, what were the steps? And Well, it was funny. <laughs> when I was painting and decorating, I ended up buying a brewery truck. Oh, that sounds was, good. And then... What happened, I had that for a few years and I sold that and then I did 12 months working full-time as a lifeguard on Maroubra Beach or Ramwick Council, mm, so yep. at the, the set of beaches. Yep. And uh, I was working one day and a mate in the surf club walked past. I said, oh, how you been going? He said, oh, good. I said, what are you doing? He said, I've just been for uh, an interview with the uh, Westpac helicopter. I said, oh, I've seen that fly up and down the coast since I was a kid. And uh, I ended up doing a bit of research, ended up going for an interview, had a second interview Ended up having a job, and that was you know thirty two years ago. Years ago. So you've been there for thirty two years. Yeah, yeah. And it's only been it's only been going for forty five, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, started back in seventy three. You know, with the little Bell forty seven, the old mass style helicopter, yeah. and from then I think that first year of operation it was a weekend summer coastal operation only. Uh, they. Westpac or the Wales Bank back then, hmm. they actually paid the $25,000 to lease the helicopter and a pilot. And we had, just like us, two clubbies. Instead of doing patrols down our local beach, they went through the training. They'd turn up at the helicopter and they'd actually do the jobs as their patrol was actually working on the chopper. And back in those days, it was uh, obviously not as sophisticated as they are now these days. Hmm. Um, they'd jump in the water. They were connected to a, a rope underneath the he- helicopter. They'd connect a patient up, lift them up, take them back to the beach. If they could land, there was a basket on the side of that helicopter. It had floats on it and the patient would lay in that. Now, admittedly, they were outside, so hypothermia was a, a real big thing that you could get hmm. on that. So, And then it would just evolved right over the years. And it's been our service has been through a few evolutions, but right up to what we're doing now, doing search and rescue work with a beautiful twin-engine helicopter... Um, yeah, it's just really evolved. Well, you've obviously shown a capacity to learn new things and evolve with the times because uh, you've been around for a long time. Um, what, what are some of the major improvements that you've seen over, over the last 35 years? From the heli- helicopter side yep. itself? Yep. I think just, just the technology, um, the development of equipment, development of procedures, um, all the things that keep us safe... And the training we do, you know, we have a we have a simulator at our work, so we can do a lot of training in the hangar at work. Uh, that makes us safer for when we go and do the do the flights, etc. We got top notch maintenance, uh, as I said, twin engine helicopters, and the single engines are, are really safe and reliable. Um, but for search and rescue work, I think if you're going out to sea, that type of thing, it is nice to have the second engine above your head because. If something did go wrong with that engine, at least we can make it back to land. Um, and I think that that's a nice thing to have. It's, it's, you know, you don't... I'm happy to fly around in single-engine helicopters, but mm. just for the rescue machine, to have the, have the twin, it's really nice. Four blades for stability. It's got a big cabin. You know, we carry medical gear, life rafts. We have all the oxygen. We carry oxygen on board the aircraft. So it's rigged up quite nice for the type of work we do. So, so you were you were saying before we started the interview about the cost of of a helicopter like the one you've got. Just for the listeners, tell us: t- can we go back over that? Like, how much it costs per yeah. hour? Uh, you know, if you look at a commercial rate of the type of machine we're operating, it's around four thousand dollars per hour. But when you think about that, there's not too many 
pieces of machinery that can do the job they do and they can save so much uh, sort of manpower when mm. it comes. Um, even to the point where it was only about uh, three months ago, um, one of the local uh, aircraft flying up and down seen someone face down in the water at, at the back of Maroubra. And they started getting all the assets going, um, jet skis, IRBs, etc. And it wasn't until... And they were searching for 30 minutes or so from that information. The aircraft flew over. It was in the, in the bay for 30 seconds. There he is. And all the assets got, guided them into that there. So the beauty of the aircraft is it's so much time... It saves so much time when it's so visual up there that you can get on scene mm. and it might not even do the rescue, but it's the eyes for everybody. Get mm. on the radio, we've, we've relocated the person, they're in the water, here they are, and then we can get the assets in. Or if we need to, it's, uh, it's out of sort of the Sydney beaches and that, we can actually winch our crew into the water to actually get the person out of the water if we need to. Mm. So there's a lot of different ways to do the job. That's amazing. Well, going back... To the very beginning, mate, what, what actually got you over the line and got you into the job? What do you think? Well, you know how the... we, we talked before about um, contacts and yep. swimming? Yep. When I went for the interview with the, uh, the Westpac helicopter, yep. uh, a mate I used to swim with, Dad, was on the board and he was one of the interviewees. Now, I'm, I wouldn't like to say that uh, that got me the job. I would have thought that my uh, interview skills were really good, but I don't think they were. Um, and it was because I knew him, he knew my background. and He knew you were solid. I hope so, yeah. 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 Well, you've and, and, proven and yourself. And then I, I, was, I was offered the job and I, had, and I was up against some, uh, some really good guys, you know, some ex-military guys and that type right. of thing. And, and I didn't know the front. I said to him, I said, I don't know the front or back end of a helicopter. It was just – but they trained me up and uh, I was very fortunate to get that job. So all these years down the track, 32 years, did you say? Yeah, 32 years. Do you still love it like it's the fir your first yeah, day? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Wake up in the morning, can't wait to get to work. And uh, when you've got a job like that, I haven't really worked for the last 32 years. That's the beauty of it. Well, you um, do look like you have a permanent grin on your face. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I do. It's a, look, it's an awesome job for, for a young guy coming through now. We've just employed, employed it. A nice young guy from Surf Life Saving, and and he's loving loving the job. And if I look back at, you know, I started when I was about 27 years old, and uh, ever since that day, I cannot wait to get to work. And you know, we might sit there for two days and do nothing, um, but when it's on, the jobs the jobs are good, and then you test your skills, and that's what it's all about. So, you know, I know you're, uh, you're a reluctant hero, but you are nevertheless, well, the Westpac helicopter is, you know, to me, a hero. Uh, tell us about some of the rescues. What's, uh, the, what's the most memorable rescue well, you've had? I guess, I guess when I look over the years, there's been so many of them, but there's a few that, that the crew have got awards for. Hmm. And, and I'm going, I can go back into the 90s, and, and the first one was in 96. And it was, a, it was an incredible day. It was a beautiful day like today, Saturday afternoon. And we got actually called to two jobs happening at once. And it was down in the Port Hacking area. And it was some board riders in trouble. And th then it was a surfer at Cronulla Point in trouble. So we just said, we'll go to Cronulla Point first, then we can duck up into the Port Hacking and have a look. Probably about 10 knots of wind on the nose. Flying across Botany Bay, we were hit by a 50, 60 knot front and it was scary. Like I was on uh, what we call a monkey line or wander lead. So um, if we're going to do a winch and I'm the winch operator, I can't be in a seat belt or a seat. So I'm ready to actually do a winch and I've got to sort of get my, my heart part of my body outside the aircraft to do a winch. And I was almost hitting the ceiling as we were going over there. And we knew the aircraft could handle it. It was just a, just a matter of us and 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 the, and the, the pilot who was flying, John. You know, he said, "Mate, you're all happy with this." He said, "Mate, it's rough, but we're right." So we kept going. Got down there, couldn't see the guy at Cronulla Point, so we ducked into Port Hacking. There was four board riders. They just gave us a thumbs up. We came back around, and further north from there, he was this young guy on his surfboard. He was washed in this wind down towards Green Hills, and just in that 
10 minutes, the surf was off the rig. There was 15 deep, 10-foot waves, and he was getting smashed. So we came around and we were into wind. Obviously, that's the only way we could sit there to look at him. And we, we basically decided it's probably a bit dangerous to try and attempt to do a winch. And we heard the offshore rescue boat coming out of Port Hacking. So we said, we'll just guide them in so they can pick him up. As they're coming around, we heard them on the radio. They got a wave over the back of the boat and said, no, we're going back to shore, back around to their base. Well, they got scared. Well, no, I think, I think they, it was actually for the offshore boat, the, the, the surf conditions and the wind it was basically beyond the actual limitations of the boat. Right. So they did actually probably make the right decision. So, but then the problem we had was... How are we going to get we this gonna, guy? We're going to watch this guy drown. Um, and we all decided, we had a brief, decided to do the job. And it was unbelievable. We put the rescue swimmer in the water. He connected the guy up. The guy was hypothermic. He was exhausted. He'd swallowed heaps of water. And we just, we couldn't bring him up into the aircraft. It was that violent, the wind and the aircraft. So we went back to the beach facing south. That's the way the wind was blowing. And we put him on the beach and the wind basically blew them over. There were two ambulance officers walking down the beach. They were fighting in the wind. Wow. And the interesting thing was when, when you talk about danger was the, the actual winch cable. It was probably, we probably had about 130 foot of winch cable out. When they disconnected, their, both their weight, the winch cable went horizontal down towards the tail rotor. Oh, that's dangerous. So, yeah, so it was just one of those things. Obviously, the tail rotor was on the opposite side, but it was just a few things. I had to run my hand down the cable and winching it up real quick, and I was really worried about, about it because that's how strong the wind was. It was like we were in the hover, not moving, but it was like we were flying at 50, 60 knots. So in those moments, are you, are you petrified as well? No. Right. No, we just got the total concentration on getting the job done and that type of thing. Um, but, you know, when I look back at that job, the aircraft did make the difference. Mm. The, the actual helicopter saved that young guy's life. Mm. And I think that was, that to me, out of all the jobs I've done, that it was up there with one of, one of the best. Just because mm. of the, out, the outcome of that, that there was no realistic other way that we could have saved that guy. And uh, we, we could have sat there and said, no, it's too dangerous and knocked it back. Um, and we'd have to live with that. But that's what you've got to do when you do a risk analysis of the job. Mm. Sometimes we can't do the job because it's no good risking our lives. As long as we can get the job done safely, it might look dangerous. That was probably the most dangerous looking job if someone was on the shore going, oh, my God. And we had one of our actual old crew. He was in the RSL club on that day looking out and everyone in the club could see this little red and yellow helicopter out there going, what on earth are they doing out there in these conditions? And we, we thought the same thing. Why are we out there in these conditions? <laughs> Probably not quite in those words. <laughs> no, that's, that's it, yeah. But that, so, that was an awesome job. So, Trevor, do you, I mean, you were handling the winch that day. Yeah, I do the two roles. Have you ever been on the end of the line? Yeah, 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 right. Yeah. So, no, you, so you get to swap over, do you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We've got a, a few of our crew that do the dual, dual roles. Some just do the single, but right. uh, of course, my background is swimming and that type of thing. I, I enjoy the down the wire side of it to go into the water too. Mm. Uh, it just depends. We can swap when I'm on with a guy. Who, we do both. We just toss a coin. Who wants to do what on the day? Um, but yeah, it's it's um, two different skill sets to do the lot. So. Mm. By doing the both, it means you've you just got all these check rides to do and currencies and, and so it never ends. It never ends. And that's the thing. As I'm getting older, I've got to really concentrate more on, on those because uh, it does get a little bit harder the, old, the older you get, you know. Well, what's the um, – I mean, I've got, I've got so many questions for you. Mm. Like, you know, what was your first one like? Uh, you know, how far out to sea? Have you, have you done a rescue and, and what was it? Um, uh, you know um, – what about your your own awards um, for for rescuing people? Like what occurred on those occasions? But tell us a little bit. Yeah, there was a, well, there was another job too. It was a, it was actually a night job. A night job. Yeah, and uh, what it was, it was four fishermen on a place called Coffin Rock. Now that's down <laughs> south that of sounds, Botany Bay. Hmm, sounds near, auspicious. Near, near a surfing spot called Voodoo. So <laughs> Coffin Rock Voodoo, it's some really good names there for uh, disaster. <laughs> but uh, what happened was they, the guy who was ringing up on his mobile phone, they couldn't – it was that noisy and, 
and the waves had increased, the tide was increasing. Right. And uh, he couldn't actually give a position. So we initially thought it was in Botany Bay. They said, we think there's there's four guys in trouble. We don't know where, but it's in that vicinity of Botany Bay. So, you know, we had to, we've got a beautiful big night sun searchlight. So we picked up the rocks and we started searching. So it took us about 40 minutes to actually find these guys. But when we realised it was around on the open side of the sea, well, we knew these guys were in strife. Now, Coffin Rock, it's an exposed rock at low tide you can walk onto. At high tide, it's got a big gully, so you can't get back to land. So when we got there, we lit these guys up, and here they were all huddled, huddled together with waves crashing over them. And this was that same as the young kid surfer we went, we said, here's our risk assessment, can we do this? Mm. And we, it was an unbe- that was an unbelievable job too at night. We ended up winching the four of them up one at a time and dropping them over to the ambulance and police on the headland who, who were waiting there when they finally realised where these guys were. But it happened pretty quick. Like the four winches had probably only took us five to seven minutes because they were really quick. But at night, high winds, waves crashing over them and the aircraft was pretty comfortable. Once again, I was the hoist operator in, in, on that job too. It was our rescue swimmer, Dick, that went down there and he was the one in exposing himself because at night you can't see the sets coming through. Mm. So, mm. And we had, a, we had this special harness. We call it our snatch and grab and you go down there and just clip it on real quick and we'll get, get them off the rock platform. Now, at any stage, those, the rest of those guys could have got washed in the water. And that would have been a tough thing to try and rescue them at night after that. I, I take it they – I mean, it's so typical. Your story is so typical of, of fishermen. They, they'd do anything for fish just to catch a, a little fish. Oh, they uh, do. Yeah, and, and they do. So I take it a lot of your rescues were around rescuing fishermen? A lot, a lot, of, lot of fishermen um, and unfortunately, you know, 80% of them uh, deceased – that's, that's the issue. No, no life jackets, you know, and the, the culture that, that we're trying to get that they must wear a life jacket, you know. People can say, oh, yeah, but you get washed off the rocks, you're going to get washed back on the rocks, knocked unconscious. Every person we've saved, every rock fisherman we've saved has had a life jacket on. Right. Um, yep, they can get washed. But if you can't swim real well, you're not going to go that far anyway. And the thing is they're not reading the surf. They're not looking at the tides. They go to these spots, you know, they're not looking, they get down there and they go, well, why is that rock platform wet? For a reason, the waves are washing over it. They don't take all this into account. You know, I go up and down, we fly up and down the coast all the time and we see these guys going, what on earth is that guy fishing there for? You know, mm. I'd look at that and go, I wouldn't go there myself. It's it's one of those things, I mean, Brett, Brett uh, was t- told me the other day, it's the, the largest sport in Australia. Yeah. Fishing. Oh, it is. Rock, it is. And rock fishing is a, a major component of that. Um, why is it they're not being educated like you would, for example, if you wanted to be a lifesaver, you'd go through nippers and you'd go through a program and you'd, you'd have to be educated to a program. You ought to be a rock fisherman. Surely there must be some way that we could put them through some kind of training routine. I think that they are trying to do that, even when people come over from overseas, you know, they have pamphlets and all that. There's signs, there's signs up. You know, I, I know just at our base, if you look at, say, from Bondi down to Botany Bay, is the most, we lose more rock fishermen than anywhere else in, in Australia. Is that right? Yep, yep. I remember uh, in one season, we lost 17. Wow. That was, and that and was you don't read about it. It's still, no, you don't. You don't. And, and would you say, I mean, without, you know, seeming prejudicial, but would you say that they're not locals? The, the Most of the fishermen that suffer, you know, a tragedy, yeah, uh, they're, yeah. They're, they're not locals? No, they're not. No, they're not, you know. Like, I don't think we're ever going to see someone that's come through the surf club. We're not going to be winching him up deceased. Mm. If he gets washed off the rocks... He'll swim around to the beach or he'll swim out yep. and he'll yell out, wait until a boat gets him, wait till a helicopter picks him up. Yep. It's, it's people that have no idea of the surf. They'll just turn up and they go, yep, I want to get some fish. They won't have a life jacket on. 
um, and they'll go down there and stand on these areas. It just blows our mind. Mm. And if they get washed out, their tendency, I mean, their natural reaction is to try and swim back to the shore rather than turn around and That's swim right. out. Yeah. Right, and that causes a causes a problem, right? It does, yeah. 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 And, and that's the thing, you know, if they can't swim, well, they've got to try and get back up the rocks. But, you know, not only do a lot of them drowned, a lot of them are, are pretty battered up from getting there. So do you, do you attend a lot of um, – I live at the lighthouse at Four Clues. Yeah. So I take it you guys attend a lot of the – I don't what's a better word for jump? <laughs> for people that jump. Because yeah, we, 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 we hear the sirens a lot. Yeah, and um, and it's not reported a lot. Um, even yesterday, in fact, I woke up. I could hear the noise, and it, it had, uh, the helicopter had landed in on our paddock. <laughs> basically, yeah. um, that must be hard to to yeah. do. We we assist the police in uh, helping them when their aircraft may not be available to do recoveries from the bottom of the gap and that type of thing. Sometimes people land in the water. So then it's initial search and, you know, and you'll find them. Um, over the years, some people have actually survived it and you get there and then they're sitting on the rocks down the bottom. What? Yeah. Is that possible? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we had that one year. And Gee, a guy, that's a long way. But it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a hundred metre drop. Yeah. What happened was a guy was on the northern side of the gap because if you look at the gap, a lot of the pl- places, a lot of the spots where they jump off, it's the lowest Lowest set of rocks right around the whole coastline there. Right. But just on the northern side, a guy jumped off there once and he hit the water, climbed back up the rocks and was sitting on the rocks. The police helicopter landed. We were further out watching, going, crew got out, walked over. Guy got up, walked in, jumped in. They flew up the top, handed him over to the ambulance. But he survived that. Not many people do. Yeah. yeah. It's very sad because. (coughs) What a horrible it is, it thing is to sad. happen and, 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 and too many people are doing it. So, so that recovery the effort must be tough for, for, the, for the team, isn't oh, it? Oh, it is, yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, even though you get to see it a lot, it, it, I guess it never, it's never easy. No, it never is, you know, and you, and you look at the police rescue squad guys that abseil over regularly to, to, to package everyone up and that, you know, we see it a little bit. But they're seen at a lot more regular than we are. The fireys on the north side, they mm. look after rescue up there. Mm. You know, probably not, not as predominant happening on the northern beaches because the gaps, mm. unfortunately, it's a, it's a bit of a well-known spot mm. and to, for that to happen. And that, you know, it's been happening at Coogee a little bit over the last few years. There's a little spot there at Coogee that people have, um, you know, whatever position their minds in at the time and, and, and they'll decided to go and do it there. Um, terrible for our crews, but it's got to be done, you know. And we'll only do it with the police want assistance to do it. Normally, they'll they'll get their aircraft to do that, which is good. Have you ever have you ever uh, been out at a rescue and thought, how the hell did this person end up here? Because it's so odd. Like they may have been way out, way out at sea, all by themselves, just floating in the water. Do you ever do you ever have that thought? You know. How the hell did they end up here? Um, not really, but there was one classic job the boys did. I, w- I wasn't on it and it was on the northern beaches mm-hmm. and there were people on a yacht and the guy driving the yacht, who was the only guy that knew how to sail, was washed in. And the, <laughs> so, and the, and the, yacht, laugh. the yacht was heading towards Long Reef Rocks and there were people on it didn't know what to do. And the aircraft tried to winch down and see if they could get someone on it. They were trying to yell, get the people to steer it away to slow it down. And eventually they did get someone on, on it to, to stop it. But oh, so the sails were up and it's... The sails was up, it was sailing. The guy who knew how to sail had fallen off the back <laughs> and it was one of the classic jobs. Wait, you mean no did. one could have worked it no, no one was able to work it out? No one could work it out. And it was he- but it was he- the problem was it was heading towards Long Reef Reef. Yeah, yeah. And it was going to be washed up high and dry and then it would have been a injuries and, you know, rescues and, and the whole thing. Anyway, they ended up, a, I think an IRB ended up coming up and gutsy move to get someone on it. It was even too dangerous to winch because of the sail, the wires and, and that type of thing. But that, that was a classic one going, how did this happen? You know, just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just, just cannot 
understand how, you know, it, I, I was, I'm assuming there were several people on the boat, right? Yeah. I can't, I, can't, I can't understand how several minds couldn't work out how to well, turn it around or slow it down. Some of those people even switch off the motor yeah, or like do yeah, something. Yeah, I know. It's it bizarre. I, I guess too with sailing, you know, there's a bit of wind blowing and that, and, you know, if, if you're going to undo stuff, you've got to watch the boom killing someone and all that. And, I was going to say it's know. a lot more complicated than what you have believe on those bigger yachts because they, yeah. they yeah. do, once they're set, they are running themselves. And if you don't know where to let off the main sheet or the spinnaker or whatever's up, it could be a catastrophe from that point of view mm. as well. Mm. Yeah. You know. No, definitely. So, Tre Trevor, we, we live in an age of, um, you know, PTSD and, you know, and um, there are all these uh, mechanisms now in organisations like the police force and like the army and, and like the um, surf life-saving fraternity. Yeah. To deal with um, possi um, possible PS PTSD situations. Um, tell us how it works in in your your organisation. Pretty pretty much for us is that the way we deal with it is that we as a crew have a debrief, talk together. We have facilities available, just mm -hmm. the same as exactly the same with surf life saving. If someone's been worried by a job they've done, that they could go further but most of the time I've found with the, 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 the crew that we have and the people we work with mm. it doesn't really need to go that far mm. you know um, I guess if you look say paramedics that are de dealing with it day in day out and that type of thing and they're pretty much the same because I've worked for years with the paramedic guys and um, but eventually it can, you know, you're doing a lot of kids and that type of thing. Eventually it can build up slowly and, and it can can affect even the hardest um, type of guys you know, that you would never never think. But um, definitely it's always there. You've got to be careful of it. Yep. And uh, we monitor all our crew, especially the younger guys now that are coming through. Yep. not saying it can't affect me. It, yep. it definitely can. But uh, with just with the younger guys that haven't been exposed to too much of it, and they're just starting their careers. It's it's something that we we, we are very careful of. Yeah. We can we can get counselling if we need to. Well, you don't you don't strike me as a bloke that look um, that cries like a baby. But but at the, was there a situation in your career where you thought, oh, this one, this one's pushed me to the wall? In the early days, the biggest one I used to hate going to was car accidents. Now we don't do those anymore. Um, we do more search and rescue type work, but um, the car accidents was the one, and I know it's like anything, whether it's a plane crash or whatever, um, but they just used to affect me. I, I hated them. And uh, once again, you know, once we got back back after the, the actual mission and that type of thing, you know, you'd have a chat and that type of thing to clear it up. But, yeah, car accidents was probably my little phobia that I, I hated. Mm. hated to do for whatever reason, mm. you know. You're always worried driving down the coast and I know with some of the actual accidents that have happened on the south coast over the last six months, the tragedies that have happened down there, you know, you, mm. you're thinking, God, am I going to come across one of these, you know, mm. it would just be horrendous. And one of those ladies, I think she, she'd actually was turned up to two of those and the second one, she went the other way. She couldn't deal with it, yeah, right. you know, just, just horrendous. Um, but this is life. It happens. We're trying to get the roads safer and that type of thing, trying to get the water safer, trying to get fishermen to wear life jackets. Um, we'll never eliminate it mm. totally. Hence, that's why we need rescue helicopters and that type of thing around, just to, mm. just to assist when someone does get, get into trouble. So um, what strikes me clearly in this interview, Trevor, is that it, it really is a team effort, not just with you guys but with the fireys, the ambos, the police, you're like one big family. Totally. Right? It's a total team team effort, coordinating the job, etc. As I said, you know, the aircraft is, is fantastic, but it might not actually complete the rescue. Um, we can get out there and find it, and then you might say there's a boat there, there's a jet ski, there's the water marine rescue, water police, then we'll guide them into, into the area. And that's the beauty of the helicopter. Um, and like I said, there's so many different scenarios that we've 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 done and that type of thing. You know, there was one um, just around Christmas time where we had a boat washed up onto the southern side of Botany Bay. Um, three on board, 
uh, we, turned, we turned up with our machine, one face down in the water. We guided a boat there. That was a full resus. So the medical helicopter followed them around to try and get their medical team there to see if they could help that guy out. Two were washed up the rocks. There was one guy who was on the rocks just in his overalls, just standing there, just in shock. Um, so they winched, I was winched down to him and he had horrific hand injuries up on the rocks. He's, it was just horrendous. So we quickly strapped him up. But the beauty of that was went down there, just had to check he wasn't a spinal injury because we had to winch him up, winched him up into the aircraft. We landed just on the road up the top, handed him straight over to the ambulance service. And that was a coordinated effort from marine rescue, us in the helicopter, ambulance service, the ambulance medical helicopter. And, you know, they just told us, well, if you look after that, we're going to do the, do the one where the guy was full resuscitation happening on there. So when we looked at that and we got back after that job and we thought, man, the coordination of that was fantastic and it was mm. really good. And, mm. you know, for every one of those patients that were, or the guys that were on that boat, they had the best outcome for what happened. They, you couldn't have got any, any better, mm. you know. Two rescue helicopters, marine rescue, jet skis, IRBs, everything was there. The, every asset you could ask was there to assist these guys. And, uh, and it was just one of those jobs, you know. But the, the actual boats, there's been so many boating accidents too over the last 12 months. It's been unbelievable. And, you know, whether the swell's a bit big, whether they've got too many guys on one side, whatever's happening, but they're rolling these boats over. And once again, no life jackets. Mm. Not even in the boats, you know. They're supposed to be wearing life jackets out there and they're not wearing them. And oh. hence we're having fatalities. Yeah, I... <laughs> I thought they were mandatory, by the way, that life jackets, you had to wear them if you, if you go out on a boat. I mean, every time I've been on a boat, I've been issued with a life jacket. Um, I just thought they were part of the course. The Prime Minister didn't have one on recently. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, God, I've got to pull him up for that. Uh, but uh, Trevor, you probably have, a, have his ear. You could probably tell him. <laughs> oh, look, I think, I think it's common sense, isn't it, really? It is, it is. You know, these days, like even the best swimmer in the world, you know, he can hit his head. Ian Thorpe can be out there. He hits his head. Yep. Um, you know, the life jacket's what's going to hold him up. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, mm. and that's just how it works. I take it that you wouldn't be face down in the water if you had a life jacket on. No, they're, uh, those life jackets, the way they, they actually work is that they keep you face up with an airway maintained. Which you know, makes perfect sense. Which it, it gives you a chance. I'm yeah. not saying it's a be-all and end-all, but mm. it gives you a fighting chance if something disastrous does happen when you're like a, like a helmet on a motorbike. Same, same thing. thing. Same yeah. as a helmet on a motorbike. You know, there's there's limitations that what a helmet will do for us. You know, if we want to go 200 kilometres an hour and into a brick wall, well, they're not going to be real good. But, you no. know, the average rider that might have a bit of an accident... He mm. gets up and walks away with a few grazers. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. As you know, since you've yeah. since you ride bikes as that's well. Right. Yes. <laughs> as right. we found out earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So um I mean obviously it hasn't all been hard work and disappointment and, you know, tragedy. There there are some um, uplifting moments and I, 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 I'm guessing that you've also been been overwhelmed with um, thanks from a number of people over the years. But share, can you share some of the the, be the beautiful side of um, human nature. Oh, I can, yeah. And this only happened a couple of years ago. We were, um, we were actually heading down to Bait Bay in the Cronulla area to do some water winch training. And we're flying down there. Once again, we we're just right, right off that desalination plant, just, just south of Botany Bay Heads there. And the boys go, mate, there's a boat overturned with four people on it. What? Went around. There it was. Here's this boat overturned. Four people holding on to it. So straight in it, we were ready to go, ready to winch. So we winched to it and they were divers. And their boat just rolled as they were about to go for a dive and it ended up sinking. And hence, they've never found that boat since. But, oh, wow. but wow. It, was, it was there. That's how early it was. We basically, it was just potluck that we were flying past when it basically happened. And we ended up winching the four of them at two trips into our, the aircraft. Um, they're all very good water people and all that, but there were no boats around at, the, at that stage. So we winched two up, 
back to the base. Boys come back, winched another two up. And, you know, and they, were, they were really appreciative of that and uh, it was really good. We've sort of become good friends with that, those guys now. They've been out the base a fair few times and that type of thing. And that's what it's all about, really, you know, just uh, – and that's what we're there for. We can, we can lend a hand. That's all it's about. So this, these things um, don't come cheap. So is there a way that – you know, if there's people listening to this, is there a way that people can donate to the services? There is yes, we're well, you know we're the Westpac Lifesaver Rescue Helicopter, and um, there are through our marketing area that they can actually donate. So is that to is, Westpac. It, is there a website or something? We do have a website, yes, the, the Westpac Lifesaver Rescue Helicopter website, and there's all information on that. And, right. and you know Westpac, one thing about our service, even for th- since it started, no one has ever been charged. Right. Who's been rescued with our air, on our aircraft, and that that with Westpac sponsorship, which has been, I think it's the longest running corporate sponsorship uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. It could even be the world now. I'm not too sure, but the Southern Hemisphere, um, and it, it'll continue on. We hope, and uh, that that money that Westpac supplied to the helicopter, that's been saving lives for that that many years now. It's been fantastic. Yeah, I went to the, the Roosters South Sydney game last night. I watched it on telly, yeah. Yeah, it was a good yeah. game, right? Yeah. I was there on the sideline. A mate of mine was uh, bought me a ticket and he uh, barracks for um, the Roosters. And before they – when South Sydney came onto the field, <laughs> there, there, there were some funny supporters behind us that were a little bit challenged. And he, <laughs> and he, and he, and he said he – said, he said, how do you know <laughs> a toothbrush was invented by a South Sydney supporter? <laughs> I don't know, George. Because yeah. anyone else would have said t- uh, teeth brush. <laughs> <laughs> a boom, boom. Yeah, anyone yeah, else? No, he said anyone else would have called it a teeth brush. Oh, you <laughs> goose. You couldn't even get the joke <laughs> right. You're right. Oh, oh, ter- I'm, ter- I'm terrible <laughs> at recounting jokes, but, you know. <laughs> oh, thank but, but it's true because looking back, some of them were missing a lot of teeth. teeth. <laughs> a lot of teeth. <laughs> so, Trevor, you, you had you, – I think George was leading into your uh, – No, no, d- no, dog joke. Dog, dog. <laughs> no, 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 there's not it, – it's not a joke. Is that two dogs? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> this, is, this, this is not a joke, right? It's for real. A dog ends up in the ocean. Is that right? Yeah, this, this was the most awesome job probably when I think about it um, and that was the first job I've done involving a, an animal but uh, it was only six weeks ago. And uh, we were called by uh, the surf radio room and they said, we've got a dog at Tamarama that's down on the – getting hit by waves down on the rock platform. And we've got, well, we can't winch a dog up, but we said there's hundreds of people with their phones calling in watching this dog down there. So <laughs> we got airborne thinking, well, there's not much we can really do. And uh, – when we got overhead, our hearts just dropped. Here was this beautiful dog on this little skinny rock platform just on the southern side of the headland there on the northern side of Mackenzie's Bay. Mm-hmm. And it was walking back and forth, getting hit by three, four-foot waves, getting knocked over. And we just said, oh, what can we do here? Like, And there's all these people up the top. So we couldn't do a winch because we can't winch the animal up. We don't have a special harness for that. So we put uh, – and it was our new young guy um, and he was psyched. So we, we winched him down onto the rocks and we had a jet ski sitting out there. We had an IRB. So we said to Cal, we said, if you get washed on the rocks, just swim out through that hole and then we'll come back around, we'll try it again. So we, we knew we had a bit of an, an out. We could get him back on the rocks and anyway – we winched him down. We've got this all on GoPro video and he's walked along the rocks and every time the poor dog would get hit by a wave, it was walking towards Bondi and there was no out there. It was getting further away from the exit point. So it was pretty good sized dog. So he's actually got to it. He's wrestling, a few waves had come. He get hit, hit, washed up against the rock wall. He ended up picking this dog up. He's walking again. He get hit again and they'd fall over. Finally, he wrestled this dog out to the front, 
onto the big rock pl platform and there was all these people up there just going, clapping and that, thousand, a thousand people. It was, it was the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. But the long story of that was the dog, whose owner didn't even know he had got out through the gate, lived up the top, was up on the top park, chased a drone 60 foot over the top oh, into the water. That's how he ended, ended up there. So, yeah, because we thought he just got lost. And, we, and then, then we found the story. He went and chased a drone straight off the top, and that's where everyone was on their phones. Oh, my God, a dog's just gone off the cliff. Into the water. Dog paddled back up and got washed up onto the rocks. Now, he spent three days in the vet with some serious internal injuries, but he survived. Oh, that's fantastic. He survived that. And, you know, and we got back and, and when we have a debrief after our, our missions, we, we're going, you know what? We would have been sitting here pretty miserable if we yep. had said, no, there's nothing we can do mm. and just flown back to the base. And, you know, and it was, it's, it was touch and go because Cal got hit by a fair few mm. waves. Mm. But the beauty of that, he's fully wet suited up. If he gets washed off the rocks, it's not someone who doesn't know what they're doing. He just swims out and we, we're going to give it another go. And it was pretty hard if the dog had got washed in him, you would have had to have tried to drag him out to get the dog in an IRB or whatever. But it was just one of those really good field, field That's jobs. That's a fantastic that story. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, yeah, it was unreal. And that dog could be your mascot now. Well, that's it, yes. Yeah. That's a fantastic one story. One of our pilots has a dog, dog out the base, Whiskey, and uh, he's, he's our mascot at the moment. He's fantastic. He, he stays out the base when he's out there and just the best, best dog ever. He's mm. awesome. Dogs are good. They are good. So we're called Float Your Boat because it's all about what floats your boat and obviously – in your line of work, you want the boats to keep on floating. but Definitely right, yeah. But uh, Trevor, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio today. It, it has been a pleasure. I'm, I'm sure we're going to continue um, uh, talking after we we hit the stop button. But, <laughs> hey, um, it's been an absolute pleasure to see, um, you know, a guy that has a perpetual smile on his face. It's you know, like, really, yeah. Trevor, that's... Yeah. You hopefully, I'll just keep. Hopefully, in ten years, you'll be interviewing me again, and I'll have done a few more jobs under my belt. That yep. type of thing. Ten years, oh, you'll be as old as Brett then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> George is on a roll today. Isn't he it? is. He is on a roll. He's not yeah. funny, but he's on a roll. <laughs> I'm not funny, but I'm funny to myself. I laugh at my own jokes, according to my wife, and that's pretty tragic. <laughs> <laughs> and she's laughing at you, right? Oh, she laughs at me all the time, <laughs> and so do the girls. <laughs> Thanks, Trevor. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Brett. Thank Thanks, you very George. much, Trev. Thank you.